Well, we are continuing on our series in the book of Acts called Growing Pains, and we're talking about what happens when that message of Jesus we call the gospel is winning. And we've been looking at various kind of pains that happen within the church, and as that continues on. Last week, or a couple weeks ago, Jared did a great job, and Brent did a great job just kind of leading us through some of those sections, and so we're going to continue on today. But real quick, with a show of hands, how many of you guys would consider yourselves optimists? Put your hands up real fast. All right. How many of you guys would consider yourselves pessimists, a.k.a. realists, right? Okay. So, all right. Any, any of you guys in here? Um, and, and then how many of you would consider yourself an optimistic pessimist? Now, an optimistic pessimist is somebody who's optimistic the worst thing's going to happen. That's just how that works. So real quick, whoever you are, I uh, just want you to understand that um, if you're an optimist, what I'm going to tell you, what I'm going to deal with here at the beginning, um, you're probably just going to want to deny and say, yeah, it never happens, or just push it away because you, you think of the best. If you're a pessimist, just hold yourself back from saying, yeah, I told you so. And if you're an optimistic pessimist, go get some therapy uh, because this could be hard. But no, I mean, I'm, I'm just, obviously I'm playing around, but there is a bit of a struggle I've been having lately. I'm a guy who kind of keeps up with the news. I try to keep up with where we are at positionally in culture and, and kind of going on, especially going on in the United States culture. And to be quite honest, over the last decade, there have been just a continued growing kind of anxiety. I think that's always been there in the pressure between church and culture. But uh, my anxiety has grown, especially in the last six months to a year, as we've seen some really interesting things within our culture continue to to grow and push. And um, to me, it's, it's just interesting when, when I read some of these articles. For example, we have this man named Joe Kennedy, who is a, a coach up in Washington at a high school. At the end of his football games, he would do this thing where he would uh, basically, at the end of the game, just go out in the middle of the field, kneel and and pray, and some students would gather. He wouldn't tell the students, come pray with me, just go out and pray on his own, and other coaches and other people would gather around and pray, and he was told by his uh, student, uh, by his, uh, you know, his school board, you can't do that anymore, so he said, okay, fine, I'll just wait till everybody goes home, then I'll do it, and people stuck around and prayed with him anyway, and because of that, he lost his job, he uh, has, has lost his bid, actually, in the Supreme Court over the issue, and so he's just kind of uh, been one of those interesting pushes in, in Washington and Maryland, uh, many psychologists have begun, Christian psychologists have begun to explain that, hey, they, they feel handcuffed because what's going on in Maryland is there's a new uh, kind of ban on conversion therapy. And they're saying, look, we don't do that. What we're doing is we're trying to help people who have unwanted, and note that word, same-sex attraction, or an unwanted gender uh, disassociative syndrome or something. And they're just going, we, we want to help them out because they don't want these things. But they're being told you can't even talk about this or you'll lose your, your licensing. And you can't even talk about Christ or you'll lose your licensing. And so there's a very strong sense that this is also coming to California. It's kind of been paused. It's back on, on board. They're even trying to push it to where churches aren't allowed to talk about these things. In Colorado, there's this man named Jack Phillips. He, he's a kind of probably fairly famous at this point. He has He's a, he runs a masterpiece cake shop, and he uh, was basically asked by two, two men who were, trying, were going to get married in Colorado and uh, to, do his, to do a cake for their wedding. They, he said no, and so they sued him, and then um, he went all the way to the Supreme Court, actually won, returned home only to have somebody go into his, um, into his uh, shop knowing that he would say no and say, we want you to bake a cake for our transition, for my transition party, said no, and Colorado sued him, or fined him again. So he's back in the lawsuit just over his conviction that this would violate his conscience. Um, then you run into New York where an adoption agency is actually doing this horrific practice of literally um, giving uh, priority to uh, priority for foster children to 
our husbands and wives or moms and dads actually who are married. And uh, they were told, you can't do that. You need to give it to whoever's first on the list. Change your priorities and stop placing people according to your faith or you can't place people at all. And you wind up with a situation in Virginia where this, man, uh, where this um, particular teacher was fired, uh, Dr. Peter Vlaming, who was a, um, just a, just a, he was a well-loved teacher in a school, and uh, a young lady who had, was a young lady at the beginning of the year had switched to being asked, she wanted to be called a young man. By the middle of the year, he just used no pronouns at all when addressing her, just kind of talked directly to the person. And the only time he messed up is when she ran out of the class, and he said, would somebody please go get her? And at that point, he was uh, brought up for using the wrong pronoun. He was, uh, it stood before his, uh, the, the school board and summarily fired for breaking a policy that wasn't actually written yet. But the situation, he's, he's, he's still in a situation trying to figure out what to do about his, uh, his scenario. But these things are there, and there are, I could give you about 50 others that are still out there. You can go find them for yourself. They're kind of growing in continuation in our, in our culture as it shifts and moves. And I bring these things forward, not, not again, if you're a pessimist, you're like, I told you so. If you're the optimist, you're like, nah, um, the rest of you go get therapy. But the, again, so for me, I'm have anxiety on these kind of things. And it's not anxiety that I think is healthy. I don't think it's an anxiety that's even biblical. I, mean, I, t- I stood with my wife many, many years ago, about 10 years ago, and we, we had looked at each other, we were looking at the trends, and we said, you know, we just got to get comfortable with the fact that one day I'll probably be in jail. And um, we're okay with that. But my real question is, how should we respond? You know, should we respond with anxiety? Should we respond with, like, like let's get in the government and be militant and do these same things? Should we yell and scream, shut our doors, push people out? What, what's the response that we should have? And it's in this kind of thing that I really want to back us up back to Dr. Luke's book of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is written um, by a man who, who was following around with Paul, and a Roman official had asked him, hey, would you please tell me, uh, write down what, the, what happened with Jesus and all the things he's done. So Paul wrote a gospel, or sorry, Luke wrote a gospel called the Gospel of Luke, and it's a biography of Jesus, and he continued on with the 30 years of history of the early, of the early church. So in that book, we call the book of Acts. It's found in your Bible, and we're going to pick up on a segment that begins to help us understand how to deal with this kind of stress and pressure and some of the things that many of us may be feeling or you're now anxious about like me. And so how should we respond? It's actually kind of found here in the book of Acts. We're going to open to chapter 5, verse 12. So you want to turn there with me and we can begin our journey in this segment. Just previous, as you're turning there, Brent uh, last week very effectively walked us through a situation in which we had um, uh, the gospel losing its integrity um, or about to because two people in the church came forward and had said, hey, we, we sold a piece of land, and we want to be sure that you guys um, get the money, and this is awesome. And they were said, this is how much you really sold it for? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were lying to get prestige and honor in the church, and God struck them dead. Protects the integrity of the gospel, and so the message is clear. Now, that's a pretty crazy moment, but here's what happens. They didn't lose their integrity, and so what begins to occur is a revival starts to break out, and that's where we'll pick up. It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people, by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the, to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. This is what revival looks like. 
when revival begins, what you're going to find is God's moving. He's doing miracles. He's removing the prostate cancer. He's stopping pancreatic cancer. He's healing marriages. He's bringing people together where they were irreconcilable before. There's this unity that occurs as they're all gathered together under Solomon's portico. You begin to see that, these, that there's an influence that's happening. There's an integrity so that the people, while they won't join them, they know those people in that church, those people there at Olive Branch, man, they really believe it. They really love people. They really care about humanity. And that's the goal is that there's an integrity beyond. There's a reputation that's solid. And so it says, multitudes of men and women were coming to the faith. Now, when you get that word multitudes in the Greek, it means you can't count it. You've gone beyond thousands, you've gotten into the tens of thousands, and just so many people are coming in that this is a full-blown revival. Tons of baptisms, people coming to faith all over the place, and that's exactly the kind of thing I believe we should be praying for as a church, amen? There are 200,000 people that surround us. We should be praying for some revival. We should be seeing God be doing miracles. There should be a great reputation for the way that we love and care and support the people in the church and out of the church. There needs to be a transformation that's going on, so much so that the influence goes even beyond the city of Corona, but would go on beyond as it does here. Continues on that these people who are being saved, they were even carrying out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter may come by and at least his shadow might fall on some of them. That's weird, but it, it happened. And the people also gathered from the towns in Jerusalem. So all these towns around Jerusalem, they're bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. And so there's this influence that's radiating beyond. There's a power of the gospel that's occurring. And all this, we'd get excited. Man, if we saw that here, we would be pumped. There'd be all kinds of stuff going on, overflow rooms and people and lots of services, whatever God was doing, we would have to accommodate that situation. But here's the thing. Whenever you see success like this, expect trouble. Whenever you see success, expect trouble. This isn't just a Christian thing. This is a life thing. I mean, when you find somebody who's being successful, there's always somebody around who's going to feel jealous, who's going to be on the other side. This, this success is exploding and people are coming to faith, but it says the high priest rose up and all were, who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And so what's going on here is this, this is the high priest. He, he's the one who's supposed to be having gatherings of thousands and tons of people coming into Judaism. And he's supposed to be the one everybody's looking to, but they're all looking to these apostles. And jealousy is beginning to build up in him. So he has them arrested, thrown into a public jail. And at the background is just this seething sense of, that's not fair. Uh, we should be the ones who are bigger. And jealousy is a powerful root of a lot of the trouble we find ourselves into. You, you know, when that kid who, who is getting those good grades in class and maybe he's a valedictorian, or he's just being successful as grades. What do we call those guys? We call them nerds. I heard it. You're right. We call them nerds. Nerd. When there's a guy on a sports field or several sports field or the court doing an awesome job, and he's good at whatever sport he's into, we just call those guys that dumb jock. Whenever you have a politician who's doing successful things and moving things and rising up the ranks, we call him what? corrupt, right? Yeah, so I'm just kidding. That's not true. Is it? No, no. I mean, when we have a team, a sports team that's, that's winning over and over and over again, we call them what? Yeah, the Patriots. Darn it. 
And notice how even saw every, I mean, every service we go, like, that's why Americans don't like the Patriots. You know, it's like, no, we love the Patriots. No, everybody else loves their team and they're jealous of the Patriots so they don't like them because that's how we work. When something's successful, we want to knock it down a peg. Don't be so good. Stop that. When the church and the gospel is growing, when it's winning, when the message of Jesus Christ is saving people's lives, there will be jealousy. There will be trouble. It may come from the government sector saying, stop helping people, that's our job. It may come from other religions saying, hey, wait a minute, you guys are taking away our, our people. Or it may come from secular, it may come from any direction. Don't be surprised, it can come from within. Churches can get jealous of other churches and we can sabotage ourselves if we're not careful. But when there is success, there will be a time of trouble. And we need to expect that and be ready for that. Because even with Moses... Right? Moses was successful. He brought the people out of Israel and uprose these two guys out of jealousy named Janus and Jambres, and they, were, they wanted the power. They thought he shouldn't be leading. What's going on here? And God said, wait, wait, you're going to start a rebellion? And he just swallowed Janus and Jambres up in the ground. All done. Daniel is at the top of his game. He's in charge of all of the, uh, all the Medes and the Persians as the top and governor over the governors. And the other governors looking at him going like, this isn't fair. King Asherah likes him better than us. Let's figure out a way to get rid of him. So they get him uh, arrested for a brand new law to not worship any other god and throw him in a lion's den. But God keeps him alive, pulls him out, and King Asherah looks at the other governor and says, your turn, and throws them in. They don't make it. When Jesus is seeing many disciples coming to know him, when there's an explosion of people being saved and people hearing about it, oh, what, what, the, what happens? Nope, they take Jesus, they crucify him on a cross. But God raises him from the dead. You see, God's plan isn't going to be overcome by human jealousy. God's plan for his gospel, for his message, won't be stopped. He has greater purposes. And so even here with the apostles, they weren't stopped. In fact, what we see is they're thrown in this jail, and it continues. But then during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the very doors and brought them out. And so, and then he said to them this, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This is interesting. Stop and think about this for a minute. Angel appears. The disciples are like, uh, what's this? Chains fall off or something, or they finally, they realize the chains aren't on them. The doors open. They walk out and the angel goes, okay, guys, I want you to go home right now. Okay? Why? Why? Well, you're the 12 apostles. You got some books that got to be written. You got a church you got to start. Hey, Peter, you got some kids you got to take care of. Go home and help your wife out. You know, you get out of here. These, these Sanhedrin wants to kill you. They got you locked up. Go home. Enjoy your freedom. Raise your kids. Write your books. Do it, guys. You got this one. It's not what happens. They were told, here's your freedom. Now go stand in the temple where you were just arrested and go preach again the words of this gospel. Go tell people about this life. And it sets up something. God's conviction here is that their freedom was for the sake of his message. That God was more concerned about the life, uh, eternal life of those they were preaching to than the comfort of the apostles. And here's the thing. As much as I can talk about all those, you know, articles and all the difficulties that Christians can feel in the United States, I can talk about what's going on in China even more, where they're being literally uh, thrown in jail and, and pastors and churches are being shut down and in other countries like North Korea where people are literally dying for their faith. But my point in bringing that up is, guys, we live in an extremely free country. 
We live in the freest country the world has ever known when it comes to religion. Guys, we lived in a country that threw off the shackles of tyranny so that we wouldn't have a a king telling us what we had to do, but we could follow our king, Jesus. Amen? We fought a war so that we could overcome this ridiculous slavery problem and come to a place where people could have a chance to be equal, and then we had to fight it all the way until we got to the civil rights where we could set people to an equality and a freedom so that we could preach a gospel, so we could be free together. This is a freedom that we have, and maybe God gave us our freedom not for our comforts, not for the next generation to have a better life, not so they can have great sports teams, which isn't bad, or a great food, not bad either, or a nice car, not bad, a nice house, not bad. Don't, but maybe his ultimate purpose was not for all these great comforts, but maybe his purpose was that we would be the freest people to ever get a chance to preach the gospel in the whole world. Maybe the response is that we are free so we can share God's message. And the distraction that we get into is enjoying the freedom for so many other reasons. The angel said, go out into that courtyard and go preach the message of this life. The words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. And I don't want us to lose this. We can get stressed out. This is where I'm with the optimists on this. We can get stressed out about all of these kind of laws and rules, but we still are free. We still have the opportunity to bring the message of Jesus Christ to everybody in our families and all of our friends and everybody else. And yes, when that happens and we hold to that conviction, the world's not going to like it. They're not going to put up with it. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be a press. In fact, they're going to do something. Early the next morning, while they're preaching, the high priest is getting up, putting on his clothes, telling him, go get the rest of the Senate together. We're going to have a big trial. So they pull all the Senate together, all the Sanhedrin. And it would have been a room a little larger than this, but it would have had bleacher seats on this, bleacher seats on this side, and bleacher seats on that side. And you would have filled it with all these men who are Sadducees and Pharisees, a bunch of lawyers and all their attaches running in and out, doing stuff, looking at their legal books and laws because they're ready to judge the situation. Now, they've gathered together, sat down in all their seats and all their bleachers. They're looking down and they say, guard, go get these uh, disciples. They take, off to the, they take off to the jail, walk into the jail, and what do they find? The guards are standing there looking all good, like, yeah, we got this. And they look inside, there's nobody's in there. Chains have fallen off. The doors are still locked. And everybody's like, gulp. So you can just imagine this poor guard's walking back in front of all these people. And he's standing there going, um, um, we couldn't find them. What'd you say? We couldn't find them. What do you mean you couldn't find them? Well, they're there. The guards are there. The doors are locked. The chains are on the floor, but there's, there, those guys aren't there. Where are they? Because now they know they're going to die, right? The, the guards have failed their job. They're in trouble. Suddenly, thankfully, somebody rushes inside. We found him. We found him. They're out in the courtyard. They're preaching out there in the temple. So they go out there and say, well, go get them. They go crawl on out, all the guards. And it's really funny because the text actually says they arrested them quietly because they were afraid of getting stoned by all the people that were listening. So can you just imagine this? They're like, uh, sir, yeah, hold on, I'm preaching. No, no, sir, yeah, oh, we have to arrest you now. What do you mean you have to, just be quiet, just come with us, please, just, just come on. They all shuffle in, and now they're standing there in this large court scene with the high priests and all the Sanhedrin staring down at these 12 men. And that's kind of where it begins to, begins to go. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name, in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. 
And you intend to bring this man's blood on us? That's a weird response. Last time I checked, this is the same high priest who, yes, did indeed send Jesus off to be crucified. What do you mean? You're going to put his blood on us? I think there's a very human reality going on here. Nobody that I know of likes to be made to look bad. Isn't that true? Nobody wants to be put in a bad light. I mean, there are times I have gone home, and uh, it's been a great Sunday. You know, like people, the attendance was big. The worship was rocking. You know, the sermon was just powerful, and people came to Christ. And I'm like walking home just going, this is awesome. I could do this all the time. And, of course, then, dude, this is awesome. I could do this all the time. Turns out, did you see all good? Dad? Hey, what'd you think of my sermon? Hey, what'd you think of my sermon? And I'm kind of talking to my wife. My wife eventually will look at me and go like, your pride is really ugly right now. And I'm such a humble man. I go, yeah, yeah, no, I don't. I go like, what do you mean? And I just grumble and gripe back because guess what? Inside, I'm already struggling with knowing my pride's growing. You ever had that problem where you are already wrestling with the fact that you feel insecure and somebody says, you're really insecure. And you're just like, shut up. We don't like when what we know we're wrestling with, with what we know we're guilty about, somebody else pokes. They already knew they crucified Jesus, and they're like, well, what if it was the Messiah? He did all these miracles. They say he's risen from the dead. You don't think he's sitting there slightly insecure about this? The apostles suddenly are set free. They show him. They go, poke. Peter and John give this guy this ability to walk, and they're like, whose name do you do this in? Jesus, and you crucified him. Poke. Don't ever talk about this again. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This is the natural reaction for anybody whose sin is brought out. And here's the problem. If we're going to talk about a gospel, we're going to bring a message of Jesus Christ's forgiveness for our sins, we have to talk about sin. You have to point out sin. And unfortunately, when you point out true sin, and not in general, this sinful thing that's out there, but when we talk about sin in particular, and we poke the sin in particular, people don't like when you poke at their sin. And so it's become a dangerous situation in some cases to point out people's sin because none of us like it. None of us like it when our lust is poked at and pointed out. None of us like when our anger is poked at and pointed at. And it doesn't matter what kind of lust it is. Our world doesn't like it either. It doesn't like when we say that same-sex lust is sin, when it says heterosexual lust is sin, when it says divorce is sin. Hey, you had sex outside of marriage, it's sin. Hey, by the way, you're lying and you're cheating on those tax forms, that's sin. Hey, your drug addiction, that's a sin. Hey, your coffee addiction, that might be a sin. You know, we go like, whoa, Greg, now you're getting way personal, right? (laughs) Euthanasia, sin. Abortion, sin. You know why? Because when a pastor brings up abortion and says it's a sin, those of you who have had an abortion, you feel a crushing guilt. You go, God must not love me anymore. God must not want me here. And here's the thing. They didn't, they weren't telling this guy, poke, because they wanted to keep the Sanhedrin away. You don't think they wanted all of Israel's leaders to become Christians? When you preach the gospel, you have to poke. But unfortunately, there's two gospels competing in our culture right now. The world's gospel says, yeah, we're all broken. Just accept yourself. And you'll see that it all comes together. If you will simply accept the twisted and imperfections in you that we all have, then you'll, you'll feel great. You'll be able to live out who you really are. That's the message of the world. Jesus' message was, yeah, we're all imperfect. We're all broken. So deny yourself. 
and follow me to a greater vision, to a greater purpose, to who you've been made to be. And those are two opposed visions. And so when we come out and we say something is sin, or we say something is wrong, and that we need to turn and deny ourselves to follow Jesus, which is the gospel, they say, no, I need to accept this and be cool with it. You people need to change. And that is where the shift comes. That's why they said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. This is, we want you to conform to our vision of reality. Stop talking about Jesus this way. Stop talking about this gospel thing this way. And so the world wants the church to conform to it. And this is difficult because the church does, or the world does, does lots of pressure tactics to move us on. You feel it, I feel it. Look, I don't like even talking about some of this stuff, and I'm a pastor. Because I'm so afraid, oh, some people aren't even going to come anymore. You're not going to bring your friends. You're not going to... There's all this mental games that goes on, but the truth is the truth. And the difficult thing here is that all of us feel this. We feel this personal pressure to not acknowledge certain things as sin. We, and we feel that personal pressure because we don't want to offend people and we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We love people. That's the truth. Either you don't want to be wrong or you love somebody. And so there's this pressure that is suddenly available to us to, to just kind of waffle and wax the line, to kind of conform to what the world kind of says about subjects that are, we're uncomfortable about, controversial things. And so we start to feel like, okay, maybe, maybe I don't need to change. Maybe God needs to change. And then when God doesn't change, we're willing to change and put God away. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen it with alcohol. I've seen it with young men who want to just go and change their life and go have sex with their girlfriend or their, or their boyfriend or whatever's going on. I've seen it with people who have um, literally stepped out of, um, or desire to, to have an abortion. I've seen it with people who have desired to, to deal with euthanasia or comfort care, however you want to call that. No, comfort care is different, but euthanasia and just, there's all of this stuff out there. People do the same pattern. The one that was the clearest to me that it happened though was back in youth ministry, I had a student who stepped up to me. Was, I discipled him. It had been a two year, or a year, year and a half process with him. Great guy, cared about him. And uh, had hung out at his house with his friends and all this stuff for years. He came to me many years later after college and says, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm totally gay. I know I am. I need to just accept this. I mean, I, I've looked at gay porn since I was young, and I knew I liked it, and it, I don't like the other stuff, and I don't like girls, and so I just know this is who I am. And I got this boyfriend. He just kind of gives me the whole litany of everything, almost like, what are you going to do about this? And I'm like, so I walk through some of my thinking that I've done from the studies I've done and the, some of the conversations about, well, you know, this is more about Jesus and pointed him back to the church and said, you're welcome here. He's like, no, I don't ever want to go there. And he explained why he didn't feel that way and just went through this whole thing. In the end, he, he didn't come back. He went a separate ways. But my fear for him was really with his mom because his mom was somebody who was extremely legalistic. I mean, in youth ministry, she gave us she gave us heck over the color of clothing kids wore. She gave us heck over the kind of music they were playing because hardcore was in at the time. She, she was just like, you need to be in the Bible all the time, this much time, all the time. You need to be a prayer every day like this. She had all these rules and all these lines. I'm thinking, this guy's going to get eaten alive by his mom when he goes home. And eventually what happened, though, is that's not what happened. When he came home and he told her, she said, oh, wow, okay, that must not be sin then. She adjusted her theology first. When she couldn't justify her theology with her teaching and she couldn't stick it out, she eventually had to divorce her husband, walked away from her marriage, walked away from her faith to follow her son. And this is not an atypical story. 
There are many people who, when they're confronted with the pressures, that they come to a personal level where they're willing to say, you know what, God, you need to change. When he doesn't change, you say, fine, then I'm going to change. I'm going to walk away. And this has been predicted. It was told to us long ago. Paul wrote it in, in the Second Timothy warning this young pastor. He said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And I'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off to myths. And the idea behind this was that eventually you just go, well, I'm just going to gather the people that are telling me the things I want to hear. I'm going to gather the people that I'm excited about. And so they would pull these teachers together and they listen to them because they wanted to hear that. And yet here's the problem. That's an individual response. The church has, at large has had other responses and not good ones. I mean, way back when there was a divide, the church started to conform, adopting the social norms and the culture of the broader church has become what we now today would call the liberal church, many of which oftentimes don't even reference the Bible during their services any longer. Don't believe in Jesus the way that we'd be talking about it. And then the other reaction was this group that literally drew up the walls and dropped the portcullis and closed off everybody in the culture and held up these things and said, these are the fundamentals. This is what we believe. Man, I'll tell you what, I, believe, I agree with a lot of those fundamentals. They're good fundamentals. But the response to the culture was wrong. They said, we don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. Go away. And they created all kinds of new levels of safety and holiness to keep people out. And unfortunately, fundamentalism did something wrong. They shoved out the culture, and the culture just ran off without the church's influence. And we've done one other thing. We've armed ourselves with the government to say, well, then we know what? We're going to get re-engaged. We're going to bring our stuff back through the government. And we fought for the government to bring our morality back into the system without making the argument at the base level in a lot of ways. And now what's happened is they've taken the same game plan and they use the morality of their worldview and the government to tell us how to live. But is this what the scripture has given us to do? Is this how we should respond when conformity is being pressed upon us? Should we shift and adjust with the culture? Should we just stand there and say, no, get lost? Should we push everybody else? The answer comes actually in the very next verse. What we see is that it is a, it's called civil disobedience. It's a holy stance, but it's a right stance as Peter stands up and says this. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's the line. We must obey God rather than men. Would you say that with me? We must obey God rather than men. One more time. We must obey God rather than men. Now, what do we mean by this? We've got to obey God rather than men. What God are we talking about here? Obviously, we're talking about the Jewish God. We're talking about Jesus. Why do we have to obey God rather than men? In what case? Well, when it means in God's convictions. So they say, hey, look, you told us not to preach in the name of Jesus. You told us we're not allowed. We've got to obey God rather than men. We still have to get this message out there. And it says, here's our proof. The God of our fathers, meaning the Jewish God, raised Jesus, whom you killed, poke, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as what? Leader. That means we follow him. And savior. Well, what do it mean, savior? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Why did he poke 
Because it's not a poke of, hey, you're an evil, dirty, rotten sinner. Get lost. That's not the goal. We are sinners who need to turn from our sin, repent, follow after Jesus who transforms us. Hey, yeah, you crucified Jesus, but he's our leader. He's forgiven you. He's raised from the dead. Receive the forgiveness. Watch what he does. Don't just sit and accept your mess because it corrupts and destroys you. Don't just sit in the acid of sin and let it dissolve your soul. Step out, turn around, deny, follow after Christ. That's the message of the gospel. God loves you too much to leave you there. He brought Jesus alive and he brought it for the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So the answer, again, is not in any case, but to obey God rather than men, meaning get the message out there. Keep preaching it. The freedom that you have is to preach the message. We just keep on stubbornly preaching the same gospel of love to everyone that we know, to our neighbors, to our loved ones. But when they tell you to stop and they tell you to conform, you stand with conviction and you stand with courage. You need to have the convictions that God has given us convictions. How did they know what the conviction of God was? Well, it just happened, didn't they? They were just released out of the prison to go preach the gospel. I think God showed his conviction. I want you to pray, preach this message. In some cases, we need to know what the conviction of God is by getting back into the word of God to know what God has said to us. He has given us all of this information so that he, we know how to live and what the right way about living is. And so Jesus always referenced his convictions with the scriptures. He said, it is written. We need to be able to stand firm on the word of God and where God has told us his conviction. Then we can draw the line and stand there. Conviction comes from the word of God and knowing the issues. You got to know what the issues are for you. You got to know where those issues are. You got to know where the scriptures stand and you got to make a decision about what you'll do. In many cases, you may need to give another workaround. For example, Jack Phillips, if you've not really heard the full story, you, you don't realize that he's not just a cake maker. The guy actually uh, graduated with a degree in sculpting. Now, there's a useless degree, right? It's like, it's a, no, but I mean, literally, and he fell in love with this idea that he could sculpt cake. And so he's like one of those crazy cake master sculptor cake guys that you see on like the Food Network and stuff. This is what he does. He's been doing it for 20 years. He's like one of the first people out there really kind of playing with this. And so he, when they were asked, when he asked for this, he said, look, I can't, I'm not going to use my skills for your wedding, but because I, I, I have a conviction as a Christian, I can't do that. But you, hey, buy any cake you want in the store, it's available to you. And here's the name of a guy who might do that for you. He gave them every option to care for them. He didn't just say, no, get lost. I'm just a big, fat bigot. He said, no, this is my conviction with the Lord. I can't use my skills in this way here. And so he gave other options. He had thought through it before the time came. And that's the point is that we need to be prepped. We need to be ready because all of us are going to have to have convictions. You should have convictions. In fact, the whole chapter of Romans, chapter 14, if you want to go home, write it down right now in your, in, your, in your Bible or in your notes, Romans 14, go home and read it. It's all about convictions, whether you should eat from the temple or not when it was uh, offered to an idol. It's all this conversation. And he tells us how we should manage each other with different convictions. In the end, it kind of ultimately lines up in this last verse. He says, so, or this major verse, so then each of us, whether you're for eating or not eating, wherever you stand with your convictions, you will give an account of himself to God. 
When it comes to that day in which you are being pushed on, when you are being pressured to conform, you must give an account to God. You must stand before God and explain yourself. This is the difference. You have to be willing and ready the day you stand before him as a Christian to explain why you stood as you stood. And you need to show why it was the conviction from the scriptures. I really believe that. Paul was very clearly saying, guys, we need to be ready. And so as a teacher, there might be levels of curriculum you can't teach. Aspects of that curriculum you can't go through. Psychologists, there may be a line that you have to draw. Web designers, there may be people that you aren't willing, like pornographers, that you're not willing to design for. Nurses, there may be certain kinds of care you know you can't give as a Christian because it kills, it doesn't help. Doctors, there may be procedures that you have to say, I will not perform these things. And because as Christians, we have a conscience that cannot be violated. We must have a conviction and the line must be drawn and you must stand with courage. Now, courage does not look like this. Yeah, yeah, come on, man. Hit me. I dare you. That's not what they did. They didn't say, we must obey God rather than man. You know, it's like, that's not it. And insult them back. Instead, they stood there confirmed in their conviction with courage. But what is courage? Courage comes when you love somebody more than yourself. They pointed back and said, poke, you crucify him, but God wants to forgive you. That's courage. They were caring about them, caring about the people outside. Why would it be that you cover your child when a raging dog is coming and mauls you rather than your child, except that you love your child more than you love your own body? Why is it that men and women will gather gather in a military, go off to war to defend their country because they love their neighbors more than they love their own bodies? What produces courage is love that is greater than the love of themselves. That's true courage. The rest is, is not courage. In fact, it can look very ugly and very damning. And we need to be able to work into each of our world what those red lines are, what those places we will not cross, and where we're going to have conviction and courage. The apostles had that courage, but then something came. They had to be ready for it. In fact, it enraged the Sanhedrin. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now this Pharisee named Gamaliel, he stands up and he says, hold on, guys, let's cool our jets for a second. Let me give you a couple examples. He talks about this guy named Theodos who rose up and he claimed to be somebody, but when his people dispersed, turned out to be nothing. And there was this Judas, the Galilean, same kind of thing happened. And so he just pauses him and says, now, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Well, that doesn't make any sense because Jesus died and these are the followers of Jesus. They're not dispersing. Why is Gamaliel saying this? Maybe he's remembering something that just happened, like an empty, empty cell. And nobody knows how these guys got out. Maybe we should be paying attention. Just a little bit. You want to kill them? Hold on. Because, and he puts it this way. I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if it's a plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they'd called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, this is not a Roman flogging where they would whip them and tear their backs open. This was the kind of flogging in which they would stretch them out across a, a stone, and they would take a whip, 
or a cane, but in this case, a whip. And they whip them 30 times. At this point in history, they dropped the 30 versus the 39 lashes. And so they whip them 30 times. In the meantime, a person would stand in front of them with a Torah scroll open to Deuteronomy, and they would read the passage of Deuteronomy 28 where they're talking about, we will obey the law, and we will obey God, and we will not go against God. In other words, we'll obey God rather than man. Whip! We'll obey God rather than man. Whip! We will obey God rather than man. Whip! And they're thinking, amen, amen, amen. Eventually they walk out of this beating, and they're not just, just bummed and like, man, we just got beat, this stinks, our comforts are gone. No, they came out rejoicing. It says when they left the presence of the council, rejoicing, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I don't think they were like, rejoicing. I think they were like, yes, oh, not pain, it's painful. They're feeling it, but they didn't stop. Every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is, the Christ is Jesus. They continued to obey God rather than men. They continued to give the message regardless of the conformity, regardless of the attempt to stop. The message is got to, has got to continue to go on out. My friends, they may want to stop us. We need to preach. They may want to hold us. We need to preach. We need to share. We need to love our neighbors more than we love ourselves, and we need to be ready to pay a cost. That may mean that we need to figure out how we handle being fired. That may mean you need to figure out how you get docked or taken off of your shift, but the bottom line is there will be a cost if we stand and continue to preach the gospel. We have, some of us have been too silent thinking, I can't tell Jesus, tell people about Jesus, but you've been given a freedom to do so. And it's time that we took that freedom seriously. The only way to really make the difference is to kindly, powerfully, insistently, without fighting back with physicality, continue to preach the message of love from our Lord Jesus as Jesus loved us. And if that cost comes, you frame that cost in the right way. You frame it in the way that Jesus told us to at the end of the Beatitudes, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil about you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is exactly what you receive. A reward that is greater in heaven than the one on earth. You may lose out on some earthly rewards. You may lose out on some earthly paychecks, but if we're willing to stand and, and confirm that we love others more than we love ourselves and we will obey God rather than men. We have conviction and courage in the midst of, a conf- of being conformed. There will be a cost and it will be accounted to your eternal registry. God will honor you. He says, if you honor me before men, I will honor you, I will honor you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. It's those words in, in the head that really, that really challenged me. My son, Nate, likes to ask me questions. And one day he came up to me and he said, Dad, what would you do if somebody held a gun to all of our heads, all your family's heads and told you to deny Jesus? What would you do? That's a heck of a question. But I get to answer it to my son. You need to answer it for yourself. How would you stand in the day of the ultimate con- when they want to conform you? Will you have the conviction because you've taken the time to sit and study with the Lord about your job? To sit and study about the love 
this God who loved you? Will you stand firm? Will you have the conviction and the courage? And that's I pray we would. I pray that we all would. You know, you may be struggling to figure out how in the world does my job even fit into Christianity? I don't even know. We have this awesome um, upcoming on Saturday, March 9th, this thing called the Workers' Worship Conference. It's a great opportunity for you just to uh, dive into a simulcast here at the church where some great speakers are going to talk about how your job's a calling. It's a holy calling that you give to God. When you know it's a holy calling, you're going to see there are clear lines that you won't cross because it would dishonor your boss, who is Jesus. I want to give you guys an encouraging step forward in those directions as we have one job to do, to make disciples of all the nations, no matter where we go. We say, love, live, and share Christ wherever we go, but that's what we're doing. And I pray God would give you the strength in your convictions to stand firm in love, to take that message, no matter how offensive it might seem. Let me pray for you. Father, I do, I just lift up this this congregation to you, this, these men and women who are willing to sit and study a text that honestly challenges me. God, thank you that you'd be willing to tell us that in the midst of the pressure and all these things, you still long for us to preach the gospel. You still long for us to tell people that you love them, that you've died for them, that you were willing to suffer for them. And God, that may mean that we need to suffer some to show that picture off. God, we, we turn away from the thinking that our freedom is for our comforts and our and our prosperity. We turn from that, though you have blessed us with those things, and we thank you. We want to turn to realize you've given us the freedom so that your message may be heard and known. And so, God, would you use this as we are willing to bring that message? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.